Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we will be today as we begin the series, The Battle for Your Family. Now, this is, we're going to start the series today and take a, couple, a few Sundays off and then jump back into the series. But here's the key concept for today. God has designed marriage. God has designed marriage. And so the implications for us recognizing that is that we must follow that design. And we must understand the way that He's designed it. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 31 and 32 today. But as you find that, I'll reflect with you something that you already know. Men and women are different. (laughs) Beyond just the physical differences, there are deep-seated differences, differences in the way we see the world, differences in the way we react to what we see in the world, and oftentimes these differences can be evidenced in the way that we express ourselves with what we experience in the world. Some time ago I mentioned that for me that this difference shows up in the way that men and women use one word, one particular word, and that word is the word fine, fine. Now I'm going to expand on that a little bit today. Because you see, when a guy says, fine, in the context of answering the question, how was your day, when a guy says that, it is a summary. We are summarizing our day. Our day was fine. There's no need to go fishing further for details that are underneath that summary. In fact, ladies, if you fish for more information, you're probably going to be disappointed you will probably find there's not a lot more information there. My day was fine. Well, what did you do? What did I do? I went to work. Well, what did you do? Well, I had meetings. I talked on the phone. I read emails. It was fine. There's not a lot of information there. Now, turn the situation around. On the rare occasion when the wife answers that question the same way, how was your day? Fine. That's not a summary. That's an invitation to, for you guys to make further inquiry. What you do not do at that moment is say, great, what's for dinner? No, that would be wrong. What you do is you understand that that's an invitation. You listen for tone, tone, because oftentimes the word fine does not mean fine. It means it was not fine in the way that it's being said. And even if it was fine, you must inquire to what made it so. It is an invitation, not a summary. If you don't understand that, guys, that it's an invitation and not a summary, later later in the evening, after supper, if you are lucky, this is what you'll hear. You really don't care about my day at all, do you? And you respond, what do you mean? You said it was fine. You know, but no, you really don't care about it. And why do you have that kind of problem at that point in the evening? It's because you didn't understand that what you heard as a summary was really an invitation for further inquiry. These are the differences, the kind of differences that are obvious. But God in His wisdom created marriage so that a man and a woman would be joined together as one flesh and He invented and designed marriage. Even though in our society today, the narrative about marriage is turning negative. But I'm here to tell you that you should not believe everything you hear. 
Our society has become pessimistic about marriage, but there actually is good news about marriage that is statistically provable. It turns out that there's good news about marriage. I have a book written by a Harvard-trained uh, researcher, Shanti Feldman, and that's the name of the book. The book is The Good News About Marriage. Let me tell you what this book uh, does. This book analyzes statistical data from sen the census data, and here's what she finds. Despite what you have heard, the divorce rate has never been 50% in America. That false statistic has infiltrated all sorts of books, lectures, sermons, some of them my own in the past. Even though we have good intentions trying to point to God's solution, the numbers simply don't add up. That's not true. Census data demonstrates this. Right now, 72% of marriages, married partners, are in their first marriages. 72%. The remaining 28% of currently married people are, that are not on their first marriage takes in both those who are previously divorced and those who are previously widowed. And this statistic has been tremendously consistent over the years. 1996 census, it was 70%. 2001, 70%. 2009, 72%. The actual divorce rate in the United States is 25% not 50%. And why this statistic matters is that it sets the tone for victory if we will just turn the picture a little bit. You can understand somebody might say, why should I bother getting married if half of all marriages fail? But that's not true. And we should look at it as 75% of all marriages succeed. There's good news about marriage. And additionally, a survey taken by the group American Values has determined that two-thirds of all marriages where the spouses would rate themselves as unhappy in their marriage today, two-thirds of them will rate themselves as happy five years from now if they work on their relationship. That is why we run programs like Marriage 911. That is why we are introducing the program Grace Marriages. That's not just for unhappy marriages. That's for, for all marriages. But we, we see working on your relationship makes a difference. Secondly, despite what you have heard, the divorce rate in the church is not the same as in the world. Statistics show us that religious practice is good for marriage. Now, the data, they did not test for theology. They tested for activity, religious activity. In a survey uh, by a group called the National Survey of Families and Households, they looked at 13,000 people over a span of seven years. And what they found was this. Families that had religious practice, that attended church, had a much lower divorce rate than the population in general. In fact, of all the factors that they took into consideration, income, age, geography, church attendance was by far the most significant positive feature. There's good news about marriage. And so some of you are thinking right now, well, with all this good news about marriage, why do we need a sermon about marriage? Well, every relationship hits potholes along the way. And when we understand God's principles for marriage, it enables rocky marriages to get better and good marriages to get great. So that's why we want to see what God's Word says about marriage. And here's what it says. Read with me, chapter 5 of Ephesians, starting in verse 31. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, those verses are the capstone of the second half of this chapter where Paul is talking about family life and marriage, husbands and wives in general. And those verses provide for us the key to much of the confusion about the relationship of husbands and wives. Paul is saying this, up until now, the deepest part of the meaning of marriage has been kept hidden. That's what he means by mystery. A mystery in the Scriptures, and particularly the way Paul uses the word, doesn't mean this is something that's not understandable. It means this is something that's being revealed progressively. And he's saying that the mystery regarding marriage is this marriage between a husband and a wife is a representation of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. So our human marriages are pictures, if you will. They're illustrations that God is using to portray the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, God always knows what He's doing, and He always does the right thing, and He does the right thing in the right order. So catch this. He did not create the plan of salvation and our ability to, to experience grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ based on the pattern of human marriage. No, it's reverse. He created human marriage based on the pattern that he always knew was going to be the pattern of Christ's saving relationship to the church. Here in Genesis, Paul, I mean, here in Ephesians, Paul is quoting Genesis, Genesis 2, verse 24. And he's saying the mystery starts way back there. The mystery started to be unfolded way back there. Marriage is a relationship designed by God to be a living, breathing illustration of what it means to be the body and the bride of Christ, united to one another and united to Him. God has invested that image in marriage. And if we want to understand God's meaning for marriage, we need to recognize that all marriages are copies. The original is that heavenly relationship of God's marriage to His people. Thus, the roles of marriage are patterned after a heavenly original, and they are not changeable. They are not arbitrary. They mean something in God's design. Back in the account of creation, God saw that the way He has designed Adam and what He has asked Adam to do in the garden could not be achieved among just the animals. It called for a unique partnership for Adam to achieve what God had ordained him to do. So God made a unique partner for him, one that was like him as opposed to all the animals, but unlike him in a way that demonstrates the difference between males and females. Men and women are different, but that difference is a blessing. That difference is meant to be a benefit. God did not make another man to be the partner for Adam in the garden, and that's significant because it shows us the will of God for marriage as He has designed it. And in His will, He did not want it to be unison. He wanted harmony. A unison sound is one note, the same note. But when you get a complementary note being played, then you get harmony in the music that we love, deep and rich and beautiful tones. 
And that's what God wants in the beauty of marriage, harmony. This man and this woman were created by God in the first marriages. And sometimes the differences that we laugh about, the differences that we joke about, really, they point to the harmony that God wants. The highest human relationship of all is marriage. Leave your father, leave your mother, cleave to husband and wife. And the mystery that lurked in the background from Genesis to Ephesians is that not only in marriage was God constructing a partnership that would populate the world, not only was He constructing a, pop, a partnership that would be the building block of every society on the planet, but in doing so, He was doing it in a way that portrays our celestial and spiritual relationship for all eternity with Christ a perfect harmony with Him. So, how do we accomplish that? How can we make that portrayal in our relationships and our marriages as husbands and wives? Take your eyes back to verse 21. It says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is the basic operational principle of marriage and family. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, if you're looking at the New International Version translation, you will see that that verse stands alone in the text. It's like it's its own little paragraph, and many of your English translations have it that way. Not all, but, but many do. And the reason the New International Translation has verse 21 as a standalone verse is because your English editor and translator is recognizing that that verse is what we call a bridge verse. In other words, it relates to what has gone before and it relates to what is coming later in the chapter. Up to verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is writing about the relationship we have in the body of Christ, the church. And so he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But also, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he connects to the rest of this chapter where he describes the relationship of husband and wife. Because it's the basic operational principle for both groups, mutual submission. It's a bridge verse. What I want you to understand is the devil cannot bear to see married people or any people, for that matter, unselfishly submit to one another. And in marriage, there is no contradiction between mutual submission and living out the role differences that are outlined in Ephesians chapter 5 for husbands and wives. These roles are patterned after Christ and the church because the marriage is a demonstration of Christ's relationship to the church carried out in an attitude of love. So the operational principle is a willingness to be humble before one another. And the way we submit to one another, the pattern of that submission is explained in the rest of chapter 5 of Ephesians. And the, the key is this, we are called to mutual submission in a way that consciously patterns our marriage after the relationship between Jesus and the church. The key is consciously, keeping in the front of my mind the role that I have as modeled between Jesus and the church. Wives, you are to pattern your relationship to your husband after the relationship that the church has to Jesus. Paul explains it this way, verse 22, read on. 
Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. That's the wife's side of the relationship. Husbands, you are to pattern your relationship with your wife, consciously remembering that Jesus, uh, what Jesus has done for his bride, the church. Paul explains that in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the conscious front of mind comparison that we are to keep in mind as married people. Wife consciously comparing to the church, the husband consciously comparing to Christ who sacrifices himself for the church. And when we do that, this is where things get interesting. The husband is to be like Jesus in his headship of the family. Let's start there. Headship includes leadership, and leadership carries authority. It is the divine calling for husbands to take a primary responsibility for Christ-like spiritual leadership in the home. That is the comparison that we are to take from this passage. Now, some of you wives are here today, and your husbands are not believers. I recognize that. And when that's the case, you must take the spiritual leadership in your home. But Paul here is describing the ideal as it is ordained. Husbands are to take spiritual leadership in the home. But we need to be careful that we don't adopt cultural assumptions into what leadership looks like. It doesn't mean be bossy. It doesn't mean be arrogant. It doesn't mean adopt this worldly macho view of who you are. Being Christ-like has to do with how you work out your role of leadership in the home. And part of that, quite frankly, husbands, is allowing your wives to use her giftedness in the way that the family is run and orchestrated. The example from the church that I would, that I would look to is the example of our board of elders. We have a leadership body in our church, the Board of Elders, and part of their wise leadership is lovingly delegating to others who are equipped for specific tasks so that things can be accomplished for the glory of the Lord. The elders do not do everything in this church. The elders do not do everything that's important in the church. And that's the model of what leadership is, freeing other people up to, to do what they are designed to do as well. So men, bringing that into the home, it means your headship does not mean you have to make all the decisions. Your headship does not mean you have to make all the important decisions or you have to do all the important jobs and your wife is only there to agree with you after the fact. That's not headship. That's dictatorship. Husbands are called to Christ-like, loving, sacrificial leadership. It is a readiness to lay down my life for my wife, just like Jesus went to the cross for the church. It's not so much about laying down the law as it is about laying down your life. And so if I could sum up one phrase pulling out of this passage, how a husband's role is described, it is this, assign top value to your wife. Above job, above hobby, above sports, above possession, listen to this, above children, above status, above power, that's your calling under God. 
Christ-like leadership. In Luke 22, 26, Jesus says, let the leader be like the one who serves. That's Jesus' model of leadership. Christ led the church while sacrificing Himself for the church. He loved the church beyond His own life, went to the cross. And husbands, that's the kind of love that you are to have for your wife, and that is your side of mutual submission. But what about the wife? For the wife, the role of submission is emphasized. And submission is a readiness to recognize your husband's responsibility to lead, a willingness to yield to your husband's authority. Submission is an inclination to follow, just as the church must be ready to follow the Lord Jesus. It is a readiness to affirm that He does have that primary leadership role. It is a readiness to use your unique gifts as as women, not to undermine His leadership, not to work against His leadership, but rather to support His calling. Now, the word submission is unpopular in our world today. You can't really use that word and be considered to be a a, a modern thinker, but it's because the concept has been distorted. We must use the word without the distortions. And without the distortions, we understand that submission never meant to sit down, to be quiet, to have no direction, no input into the home and into the family. That's what, not what it means, and we know that because that's not the model of the church. And remember that the wife's model is taken from the relationship of the church to Jesus Christ. And in the church, the people are the church, and we are meant to be active. We are meant to pray. We are meant to use our skills. We are meant to operate under our gifts and talents to operate the, the, the ministry of the church so that men and women, boys and girls, can be saved by Jesus and grow in His grace. You see, there's an activity there. So, wives, there will be times when the most lovingly submissive thing you can do for your husband is this. Say these words, honey, I don't think that's a good idea. (laughs) Honey, let's take some time to pray about it or to think about it. Because marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church, but guess what? Your husband is not Christ. And there are times that you can help them lead well. Gentlemen, God knows that you need the insights that your wives will bring you. He knows that you need their ideas. And wives, God knows you need a godly leadership, a man who loves you and willing to die for you. If I could sum up in one phrase the role of the wife, it is, ladies, be your husband's greatest cheerleader. Be your husband's greatest fan. Respect him, value him, and let him know that you are proud of him. In fact, that leads us to verse 33. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You see, there is mutual blessing in marriage. Now, I'll take a moment and say not everyone is called to be married. I recognize that. Some of us are called and gifted to be single. After all, Jesus was single. The Apostle Paul who writes these words, he was single. And in that role, a believer can do much for the kingdom. Paul points that out. 
But for those of us who are called to be married, there is a blessing in seeing and obeying God's pattern. And in that blessing, the final point is this. As that mystery is unfolding between husbands and wives, operating that operational principle of mutual submission, what you will find is joy, pleasure. But it will be a derived pleasure because the pleasure you're feeling, you're feeling it as you're giving joy away and giving joy away, uh, a pleasure away to your spouse. The happiness that you will feel is as you give happiness away. Verse 33 says, he who loves his wife loves himself. God has not constructed marriage in a pattern that denies us joy or makes our life miserable. He shows us that in marriage, in mutual submission, we will gain that joy as we see to the joy of our spouse. And why that is vital is this. If I could sum up the failure of marriages that over the years I have watched go down the tubes, it usually ultimately boils down to this. One person or maybe both have decided to live for their own private pleasure, their own private joy, their private happiness, and they've neglected or rejected the truth that as I give happiness and joy to my spouse, I will gain happiness and joy as well. When we respect that truth, we will engage in mutual submission. When we reject that truth, marriages become selfish. And when marriages become selfish, you are on the downward slide. Mutual joy is better by far. And that's how God has designed it. Married partners, that what is, of, is available to you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is the way God has designed your marriage to operate. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us to go to Your Word for guidance. Help us to be people who turn to the Bible when we have questions about life. Not all of us are married in this room, but all of us know married people. All of us are part of a society where marriage is being attacked. So help us to frame our understanding, our conversations, based on what you tell us and enable us, Lord, in so doing, to demonstrate love. The most loving thing we can do is tell people how you have designed us to live. And so, Lord, we pray that as we submit to one another, we would also submit to you, doing your will each day. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.